This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. Hi, everyone. It's Andrew. I recently just finished a rotation in the cardiac intensive care unit. On my last call day, I admitted a patient who recently had his first two episodes of ventricular tachycardia. Ventricular tachycardia is a fatal heart rhythm and one of the causes of sudden cardiac death. Patients with this universally receive an implantable cardioverter defibrillator, or an ICD. The ICD works to rescue the heart when it goes into that rhythm, delivers a shock to restore a normal rhythm. It's better, however, to prevent the patient from going into that rhythm, and currently that is done through the use of antiarrhythmic medications and through catheter-based ablations. Despite those treatments, however, there are many patients who continue to have ventricular tachycardia. There was a paper published back in December of 2017 in the New England Journal of Medicine describing a new method that was pioneered here at Washington University. The paper is entitled Non-Invasive Cardiac Radiation for Ablation of Ventricular Tachycardia. This research was a collaboration between an electrophysiologist Dr. Philip Kukulich, and a radiation oncologist, Dr. Clifford Robinson. They took five patients who had refractory ventricular tachycardia despite antiarrhythmic conditions and catheter-based ablation. They used non-invasive means of identifying the origin site of the ventricular tachycardia using a 256-lead surface ECG in combination with cardiac imaging through either CT or MRI. Then, using stereotactic body radiation therapy, which is primarily used currently to treat cancer, to irradiate the heart and thereby reduce the amount of ventricular tachycardia the patients were experiencing. They enrolled five patients who, in the 15 months preceding the ablation, experienced a sum total of 6,577 episodes. Immediately after the ablation in the following six weeks, they experienced a sum total of 680 episodes. And then after that six weeks period, at 12 months later, they experienced a total of four episodes between those five patients. It is important to note that one of those patients died from a stroke a few weeks after the, after the treatment. Dr. Kuglitch was kind enough to sit down with me and spend some time going over a few of the questions that I had about this trial. Dr. Kuklich is a house staff favorite and an excellent clinician and educator of cardiology and electrophysiology. He received his medical degree from Vanderbilt and was a resident and chief resident up in Northwestern University until he came to uh, Washington University for cardiology and electrophysiology. And he's been here since 2005. I really enjoyed my visit with him, and I learned a lot, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for meeting with me today, Dr. Kukulich. Can I have you just say uh, your name and your title? Sure. I'm Philip Kukulich. I'm a cardiologist at Washington University. I'm an associate professor level. Uh, Specifically, I'm a heart rhythm doctor. Perfect. Great. And today I want to talk to you about a recent paper uh, that you were the first author on in the New England Journal of Medicine about non-invasive radioablation for ventricular tachycardia. As I was looking at that paper, 
my first thought was, who came up with this idea? Where did that, where was the inception point for saying, we should give that a shot? I feel like it was a long time coming. Um, if you take care of patients who have ventricular tachycardia, you know that our, we have a lot of needs. There's a lot of shortcomings to the treatments that we use. Uh, the things that we have in our armamentarium right now are medicines, antiarrhythmic drugs, or defibrillators, which are devices that go underneath the skin and can shock the heart and restore a normal heart rhythm. And we have catheter ablations, where we go inside the heart with catheters and we target the regions inside the heart that are causing the life-threatening bad heart rhythms, and then we try to destroy those. Uh, and that's it. That's the limit to what we really have uh, in our armamentarium. And despite these uh, advances in the various fields, we, we still don't win the race. We still don't, um, we, we don't fix ventricular tachycardia well enough. When you look at it from a global scale, sudden cardiac arrest is still the number one reason that humans die. It, it, ischemic heart disease and stroke are oftentimes put together and, and saying that this is, those are the two things that are the number one causes of death or the leading causes of death. But of ischemic heart disease, sudden cardiac arrest is the most common. And of sudden cardiac arrest, ventricular arrhythmias are the way that people die. So there's a lot of a, a, an unmet need in this space. Now you ask, where does the inception come? Where, where do we get this idea of kind of treating it this way? Um, it's interesting. The, uh, I think the, the inception point is actually in a neurosurgeon's office. So I was collaborating with a neurosurgeon by the name of Al Kim, and I had asked Dr. Kim if he knew anybody on the radiation oncology side who would be crazy enough to think about ablating cardiac tissue, and he put me in touch with my partner and my friend Clifford Robinson. So Cliff Robinson is the senior author on this New England Journal paper. He's my close collaborator, and the two of us have moved this forward in a very important way. Uh, but that's, that's actually where the, the relationship came together. Now, sort of speaking broadly, Cliff treats cancers. He is the chief of the stereotactic radiation uh, group here and, and uh, a world-class investigator in his own, own right. Um, but he also has the understanding that sometimes you have to think outside the box. Sometimes you have to be a little more creative to solve some solutions. And he's done that in his career help patients with cancer. So when he and I sat down together and we met, it was um, uh, difficult for us to get on the same page from a language standpoint. We were trying to understand what each other does, uh, but ultimately um, I think he had the courage to move forward with the idea of non-invasively ablating the heart. So really this comes together in a very collaborative way, in a way that I think really highlights the power of a university setting like WashU. Okay. Very cool. That's, uh, yeah, I'm always interested in how these ideas start and then where they, and then how they come to play out. And so a lot from your connections that you've made here and relationships that you build. Then kind of going into bits of the paper, one in the methods you're using a non-invasive way of mapping of doing the electrical mapping for where VT comes from. And one of my questions is how commonly is that done? Is that like a routinely, is that routinely done for other mapping procedures or is that also fairly novel in its approach as well? 
I think a fair summary of what we're doing right now is that we've developed a way to do a complex heart ablation entirely non-invasively and to do it in roughly seven minutes. Uh, so we take a, a very complex sort of procedure that oftentimes takes hours and hours, and we're now doing it in minutes, and we're doing it in a non-invasive way. And one of the main enablers of that leap to making this uh, a reality is in the non-invasive mapping. So the non-invasive mapping is called electrocardiographic imaging, or ECGI. Now, ECGI was invented, tested, developed, and really perfected by my research mentor, Yoram Rudy. So Dr. Rudy works on the Danforth campus. Uh, he was somebody who I met during my fellowship here at Washington University. Dr. Rudy has brought this technology forward. So electrocardiographic imaging, ECGI, has now been around in development for nearly 40 years. And the concept of using body surface potentials, the electrical information from the body surface, and marrying that with a patient-specific anatomic scan, like a CT scan or an MRI, to give you a beautiful four-dimensional image of the heart. Three dimensions plus the time, plus the, the information that you get from uh, each heartbeat shown in an isochrone map. That's a time map. It's really a, a groundbreaking sort of research that Dr. Rudy has, has brought forward to the clinical space. We've been using this in development for some time now. It is now commercially available through a company called Cardio Insight. And Cardio Insight has, uh, has had a limited rollout of this ECGI technology for clinical use. So it is now FDA approved to help direct ablations and we've been, uh, in our study, we have still been using the ECGI technology, but moving forward, we're looking forward to working with Cardio Insight in that group uh, in an FDA-approved sort of manner. Um, but as for, like, routine, like, clinical practice, are still people still going down to the EP lab to have those invasive measurements rather than, rather than these, rather than the ECGI? That's what it sounds like for me. It sounds like the ECGI is available, but limited in certain places. Well, that's a good, that's a fair uses. way to think about it. Um, the 2016 way of doing a VT ablation would be an eight-hour procedure where a patient is uh, under general anesthesia. We put in multiple catheters through veins or arteries in the leg or in the neck. And then we very meticulously map out the inside of the heart, or sometimes even the outside of the heart, with the tip of a catheter, and that's done in a point by point by point, very methodical fashion. And that mapping takes hours, and it is very invasive. So that all happens in the EP lab, as you say. In 2017, the Cardio Insight uh, system became FDA approved, and uh, at Washington University, we are one of, I think, seven centers in the United States who have access to that technology. We're using it more and more in our routine clinical cases where we will put the vest on patients and actually do the mapping before the cases or sometimes during the cases to help streamline the procedure. It seems to lead to faster procedures for patients because we're more directed in where we can put our catheters and do the ablation. Gotcha. And so that sounds like a 
just that self and its that technology in itself is a major leap from just a time-saving aspect for your labs and your procedure time. It can be. I think that's a, a, a forward-thinking way to apply that technology. We haven't proven that yet. It hasn't been shown in any sort of clinical trial that the CardioInsight uh, non-invasive mapping is going to make things faster, better, safer. But I think it doesn't take much of a leap of um, uh, logic to get to that. So because CardioInsight is so new, uh, we're only now putting together our, our experiences and, and we'll be publishing those sorts of data to show that, uh, indeed, we think that it will be faster, safer, better. So now at the risk of exposing my, uh, my lack of knowledge, I'm going to uh, prompt you in, into the next question by uh, the, the goal for an ablation is to find you know, the, uh, the nidus for or the starting point for this arrhythmia. And using this non-invasive technique and using MRI imaging, you can then pinpoint in a three-dimensional space within the heart and the substrate where that likely point is. Now, and a lot of this focuses on the myocardial scar that you can get maybe in the area of like a, uh, like a good example is like an old area for a heart attack, an old infarct being a scar, and finding where precisely in there it is. And so in your paper, you discuss about finding the, this quote-unquote like exit point for the arrhythmia. And part of my question is how important is it to find this exit point rather than just like ablate the whole scar and... How precise does this exit point need to be? Excellent questions. Uh, and I will say that the field of cardiac electrophysiology is still trying to figure out all of those answers. Um, indeed, ventricular tachycardia, the life-threatening heart rhythm that we deal with, uh, oftentimes uh, can be uh, due to scarring of the heart that the electricity moves through the scar slowly, then exits out of the scar and wraps around to the backside of the scar and re-enters. And it's that sort of re-entry that is the most common sort of ventricular tachycardia that we deal with. We've learned a lot from putting catheters into the heart and analyzing what the electrical signal looks like in the scar, around the scar, in those zones where the electricity is moving slowly and when it is not. So we've learned a lot about the physiology of ventricular tachycardia by putting catheters into the heart. And it turns out that a lot of what we do also interfaces very nicely with the advances in cardiac imaging. So the MRI sequences, the, the high-resolution CT scan, Adding the metabolism components of things like PET scans and nuclear studies, these are all coming together in clinical electrophysiology for us to understand the three-dimensional characteristics of the myocardium. And as we continue to learn from that, I think each one of those um, uh, areas of cardiology continues to grow and continues to learn. So we continue to see now that electricity, the, uh, the electrical exit sites that, that you had mentioned, the areas that uh, the electricity exits the scar from, that could be on the inside component of the heart, the endocardium. It could be on the epicardial side of the heart, the outside component. It could be in the middle of the myocardium. We're learning more and more about that. And where it exits probably 
suggests where we should be putting our catheter to be thinking about ablating uh, the, the heart. Now, if you are an outsider looking in, if you are somebody who were to assess the situation in clinical cardiac electrophysiology right now, I think a fresh set of eyes might look at this and say, well, why do you even need to put catheters into the heart? If, if your medical imaging is converging on the ability to tell you where those critical components of a scar are, and if you've learned a lot from catheters already and you think now you have a non-invasive way to image the electrical components of the heart, the last leap would be putting that all together and being able to predict, just based on looking at the scar characteristics and looking at the electrical properties of the heart, and putting that all together and predict where the trouble spots might be. Be able to predict who might be at risk for ventricular tachycardia, who has a scar that seems to feature the uh, high chances of re-entry, and which scar is not going to feature high chances of re-entry. And then if you do have re-entry, can you tell where it's going to be coming from just based on the scar and electrical and metabolic characteristics? And I think the answer to that is yes, and we'll continue to get better on it. But then you take that leap forward and say, well, do you actually need to enter the body to get that information? And that's where the non-invasive ablation, I think, adds an extra leap forward. Okay, very cool. About a few, so there were five patients in this study, and I was impressed by that, the fact that two of them in the, in the few months preceding the treatment, had like thousands of episodes of ventricular tachycardia. So the other, like the other three, they were having like in the, in the, you know, tens, dozens sort of range. But a couple of these are having just like thousands of episodes, which is kind of unfathomable to me, knowing that it's like a fatal rhythm. So how, how are they even walking around if they're having, you know, 4,000 episodes in, you know, a couple month period? Yeah, I think the great news about what we're doing with defibrillators and saving lives is that they do work and that they do save lives. So patients who have scar in their heart or have cardiomyopathies in weak hearts uh, will oftentimes be given a defibrillator to help protect them from sudden cardiac arrest. And the good news is those defibrillators do their job. And they do their job one of two ways. They could either pace the heart a little bit faster than the ventricular tachycardia. That's called anti-tachycardia pacing or ATP. The good news about ATP is that it does not hurt. It's pacing. It's a 8, 10, 12 beats of pacing to try to overdrive the tachycardia and terminate it. If the anti-tachycardia pacing doesn't work, well, then it charges up and delivers a high-energy shock. And that jolt of electricity hurts. So um, the good news is it's they save lives, but the bad news is if you're getting shocked, it's painful. It, it's a poor quality of life. And getting shocked over and over is um, likely to be a sign of a very sick heart and, and the end is near. So when we take care of patients who have ventricular tachycardia, some patients may have it very irregularly, maybe once a year, and we manage them with medicines or we'll do a catheter ablations on those patients. The harder part is when patients have what's called VT storm or electrical storm. They're going into their ventricular arrhythmias over and over and over. And that's what all of these five patients enrolled in this uh, or published about in, in the New England Journal. Um, they were all patients who had electrical storm 
They were all patients who had failed multiple antiarrhythmic medicines. Many of them had failed catheter ablations, and if they hadn't failed catheter ablations, they were uh, considered contraindicated for catheter ablations for one reason or another, usually due to uh, heart valves, uh, mechanical heart valves that might get in the way. So all five of these brave patients who uh, said yes to be a part of this learning experience with a non-invasive ablation, they had very few or no other options. They had already tried all of the standard options. Uh, many of them, uh, or I should say several of them, were listed for heart transplants, but that was not widely and readily available. And some of the patients were considered too sick or too old or too frail for even something like a heart transplant or a left ventricular assist device. So these patients were really at the end of their road. Yeah. And the results for them are impressive. You know, the number of episodes of VT afterwards dramatically drops off for them. Even given, you know, as you might expect, having some irritation from the, uh, from the radiation, even in that short-term follow-up, the amount really substantially decreases. So that's really exciting in itself. It is. I think it's also important for us to frame the results from... Uh, in a way that is always patient-centered. Uh, and I say that because um, you know, these were five patients who were actively dying. These were five patients who were having life-threatening arrhythmias over and over and over again. Um, and many of them had very weak hearts along the way. Um, one of those, and we need to approach any new idea, any new treatment in particular, uh, with the possibility that we could be causing harm as well. And in fact, one of those five patients died about three weeks after treatment. And I think it's important to remember her and, and learn from her and talk about her too. So one of those five patients was, uh, she was an elderly woman in her mid-80s, and she was uh, very sick and offered hospice care uh, for her recurrent ventricular tachycardias. In fact, she was one of those patients who had had thousands of anti-tachycardia pacing episodes in the days, weeks leading up to our treatment. Um, interestingly, she was a, a woman who uh, was one of the first people to ever get a clot-busting medicine for a heart attack. We call them thrombolytics. She actually was one of, I think, the third patient to ever receive thrombolytics for a heart attack. And that was a a study that was done here roughly 30 or 40 years ago. So when we spoke with her about the idea of enrolling in a clinical trial, you know, she, she kind of laughed and, you know, looked us in the eye and said, look, I'm alive today because of the success of a clinical trial back in the 1980s. So um, we learned a lot from her, uh, both while she was alive and when she died. She had had a stroke about three or three weeks after her treatment. And we were and still remain puzzled about it. And she was at high risk for a stroke. She had many risk factors. Uh, we used the CHADS-VASC score. I think her CHADS-VASC score was seven out of nine. And she couldn't take any blood thinners because she'd had prior uh, bleeding episodes. Um, but she was kind enough to let us ultrasound her heart uh, to look for clots or look for any damage in her heart. In fact, her heart function was stronger uh, about three weeks after the procedure than it was before because she was having a lot less of the ventricular tachycardia. Uh, 
when she ultimately passed, she and her family were generous enough to uh, make sure that we had the heart to learn from on an autopsy. So we, we learned a lot from being able to look at that heart and, and see. And it, it gave us, um, I think it strengthened our, our resolve because we didn't see anything that looked like acute injury in the heart from the radiation at the three-week mark. Uh, so it, it gave us, I think, uh, more confidence to move forward um, from and, and learn from, from what she offered to us. Now, the other four people in that trial remain alive. And as you point out, have had you know, dramatic reductions in their ventricular tachycardia, many of whom have been able to come off of antiarrhythmic medicines. Now, it is only five uh, patients who, in, that we reported, uh, of which only four have long-term outcomes. So I think we have to reserve some caution about the interpretation, but it, it did give us the uh, energy and uh, the motivation to move forward with those next formal studies. So we have... Uh, Subsequent to the paper, we in, opened a phase one, phase two prospective trial looking at safety and, and efficacy endpoints in very rigorous ways. We're taking patients and we're looking at the defibrillator treatments in the six months before treatment and the six months after treatment. We're trying aggressively to get patients off antiarrhythmic medicines after treatments. We're looking at very closely at any safety signals that might be related to cardiac radiotherapy. So I'm, I'm proud to say that that trial has enrolled amazingly well. We thought we would get roughly one patient every two months. Mm -hmm. We were getting two or three patients every month. And uh, over the course of 14 months, we uh, enrolled and treated all 19 patients that we needed. And just last month, we closed enrollment. Uh, and so now we're looking for the six-month follow-up data on these patients. And we're hoping to report that data uh, in May or so of this year. Um, I think this is a, in a very important step forward because it's really the first uh, scientific study of this with rigorous endpoints, with uh, additional imaging after the treatment to look to see what kind of effect we might have, both good and bad, from cardiac radiosurgery. Uh, we have uh, uh, serum biomarkers to look for uh, mechanisms uh, that might explain why somebody might stop having ventricular tachycardia. Very little is known about cardiac radiobiology. What are we really doing with the radiation uh, on damaged tissue, uh, damaged heart tissue? So we're hoping that the serial imaging, that the biomarkers, that uh, serial electrocardiographic imaging, ECGI, might help us understand all of the different uh, components that go into the antiarrhythmic effect of cardiac radiobiology. Wow. Okay. I presume that was the Encore VT trial? That's correct. That's called Encore VT. It's the uh, EP-guided non-invasive cardiac radiotherapy. Correct. Very cool. To give a bit of the, uh, um, you know, a possible, like, critics aspect to this approach would be also in, I think it was in 2016, the VANISH trial. So this was in treatment for ventricular tachycardia using escalation of antiarrhythmic medications versus catheter-directed ablation. And no mortality difference was seen between those two groups. So at least from my understanding, the proven mortality benefit in VT comes from an ICD. That's what's demonstrated at hard like out points. So while we have encouraging results here, you know, 
someone might say, why are we pursuing more of this, uh, more ablation techniques when prior evidence hasn't demonstrated that? It's a fair question, and it's a, it's a multi-layered question. Um, the Vanish trial was really, I think, one of the best studies um, that our field has done uh, with regards to catheter ablation. It was um, across multiple centers. It was 15 centers in Canada and um, took patients who had already uh, had a defibrillator, who had uh, a therapy uh, or several therapies from their defibrillator and uh, randomized them to either antiarrhythmic medicines or uh, catheter ablation. <clears throat> if patients were already on antiarrhythmic therapy, they had escalated doses. So most of those patients went that direction. Um, it looked at a combined endpoint of death, uh, VT storm, and ICD shocks. And uh, that was its stated primary endpoint. Uh, and in the primary endpoint, there was an improvement, a modest improvement, but a statistically important improvement in terms of death, ICD shocks, and VT storm as a combined endpoint. When you broke that study down and looked at each of the individual endpoints, like mortality, like ICD shocks, or looking at VT storm, much of the uh, result was shouldered on VT storm as opposed to death or just random ICD shocks. Um, it's been shown in a number of studies when, uh, let me take a step back, it's difficult to know um, how much you can push on mortality by stopping, by stopping ventricular tachycardia. Uh, and what do I mean by that? There are some very healthy patients uh, who might have a scar in their heart and might be getting shocked once a month, but they're doing well. They're New York Heart Association class one or two, walking, talking, maybe even exercising and living life and doing uh, meaningful things and are in good shape otherwise. Uh, if we can stop their ventricular tachycardia, their quality of life improves, no doubt. And there's good reason to think that their longevity improves, particularly if you think that each of those times that the defibrillator shocks them, they're trying to die. And that if the defibrillator stops working or if the shock doesn't rescue them, then they will die. So, um, and it's been clearly shown in a number of studies that if you do a catheter ablation, people have fewer ICD shocks. Most of the time, if you look at the burden of ventricular tachycardia, it goes from a lot to less. We like it to go a lot to zero, but maybe that's not the result for everybody. Now, conversely, to compare to that younger person who is otherwise healthy getting shocked, we see the other end of the spectrum. We see people who are older, frailer, have multiple comorbid conditions, maybe have very advanced cardiomyopathy, heart function that's very reduced, and they may be having ventricular tachycardia. Now, if we make their ventricular tachycardia go away, or if we don't, they may have the same limited longevity anyway. So it's difficult because you really have to choose your patients right if you're thinking about understanding and looking for mortality specifically. So in patients who have very advanced cardiomyopathy, the VT may just be a marker of something that is going on anyway, and that patients die of heart failure a month later, regardless of their arrhythmia, presence or absence. So I think it's a, it's a real challenge in our field right now to think about 
who are the patients that we can improve quality of life? Who are the patients that we can make live longer? And I think those are really the two most important things that we ought to be thinking about. And that may mean that we have to be a little bit more aggressive about treating the patients who are on the front end of their disease, the healthier patients, and figuring out ways that we can get their VT to stop. And it may mean that we don't have any great options presently for patients who have very advanced cardiomyopathy. That we may go through extended efforts to try to get patients to not have ventricular tachycardia, but they're so late and so advanced in their disease that it, it may not matter. So I think a lot of this falls on patient selection. No, and I think that's equally as important, you know, the patient experience and their quality of life. You know, I think often we focus in on that mortality as kind of your gold standard, if you will, for you know, clinical benefit and efficacy, but truly a lot has to be said about what the patient's experiencing and the trauma that they get from their shocks and symptomatically feeling better as well. In the Encore V, we agree, by the way, and in the Encore VT trial, uh, quality of life uh, metrics were taken before and serially through follow-up as well. Because I do think um, that that's underplayed and undervalued in the current literature. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for meeting with me. There are just a couple of thoughts about what's up next for you in this area. Right. Thanks, Andrew. And thanks for your time. Thanks for making this happen. Um, we await the Encore VT data because I think that's going to inform us where we go next. So in a more rigorous trial, is this indeed safe and is this indeed antiarrhythmic? And if so, how? And if so, when? And that's going to inform our next set of trials. Um, the next trial that we're building is going to be a multi-center. We want to see this scaled out to other centers and see that this could be a reproducible effect. And if indeed Encore VT shows us that it is safe to do, and that if we choose the right patients that we can get their VT under control, then I think you know, putting this forward in a randomized study is really the way that this goes. So we're looking forward and building the next set of trials that will be largely driven by the results of this Encore VT trial. Um, from a technical standpoint, there's a number of things that we can do better. Thinking about motion management, how the heart moves, how we breathe, and are there ways that we can incorporate motion management to be even more precise about our delivery of ablative radio energy. Uh, we really feel strongly that we want to dig deeper into the biology and uh, really understand what's going on with the radiation as it interfaces with diseased heart, because we're really focusing our radiation onto the diseased portions of the heart. And, and how does that make it less likely to have VT? So there's a lot that we want to learn still and a lot that we're going to be uh, pursuing over the course of these next several months and years. That's very exciting. Thank you, Andrew. I appreciate your time. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of AP Cardiology. This series is co-sponsored by MedPage Today and by the Division of Medical Education at Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine. Much thanks to the band Broke for Free, whose song Night Owl on their album Directionless EP, I Views for My Theme Music. It is used under a Creative Commons license, Attribution 3.0. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.